and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, please. Second Corinthians chapter 8. Feel free to use the uh, table of contents at the front of your Bible if that's helpful, or if you're um, still having a hard time, feel free to ask your neighbor or pull it up on your phone. We, we do permit, permit phone Bibleism here, if that's helpful to you. By way of introduction, I want to first kind of walk you guys through what this sermon series is. Here at this church, we do sermon series um, because the scripture is a, a very long dissertation or a long narrative in certain cases, and sometimes it could be hard to piecemeal it. And when we do our sermon series, it's not just for acute category or um, sort of theme for a month. What it's supposed to do is to help us guide what the scripture is actually telling about. Now, this is a point in scripture when Paul is talking to the Corinthian church about a monetary gift that he's collecting from them for another church. Now, because of that, because we allow where we are in scripture to dictate what we're doing as a church and what we're teaching as a church, this also means that we as a church are going through a sermon series about generosity and giving. Now, that can be somewhat uncomfortable, and, and I totally recognize that. Um, so, you know, if you're, if you're new here to this church, or you're newer to this church, or if even you're new-ish to this church, we just, we kind of want to walk you through that, give you, give you kind of a warning ahead of time. That is what this discussion is going to be about. But let me first give you a caveat. Um, churches like ours, we run on offerings, or sometimes we shorthand them, we call them tithes, that, that regular congregation members of this church contribute generously from, from their own money, um, by a few different avenues to support this church and make it run. You know, we, we have to pay for the power, we have to pay for our rental, we have two employees, of, one of which is, is me, and I appreciate your guys' generosity. Um, and this practice, we oftentimes call it tithing. However, that's not what we're going to be talking about today. We're not talking about tithing. We're not talking about the regular giving of, of your own money towards the church where you attend to support it. We can gather some good principles for that practice from the sermon, but that's not what we're talking about. And I'll tell you why. We are surrounding an item in scripture that's come to be known as the Jerusalem offering or the collection for the saints. And this is something that Paul did where he, he went to various different churches around the Mediterranean, especially the Gentile churches, and he fundraised for the church in Jerusalem that had a great need. They'd experienced a famine, they'd experienced persecution. Also, it just so happens that the church in Jerusalem was just a little bit less prominent in the global scale sense as the Gentile churches were. You know, the, the Corinthian church was located in Nicaea in Greece, and it was just more on the global platform than Jerusalem was. And so Paul had a passion and um, commendation and a dispatching and assignment to collect this for the saints. So that's what this is about. It's a special fundraiser. Paul is not fundraising for himself even right here. Now, let me explain. Paul did, in some ways, operate his ministry based upon the generous contributions of other churches. He, he was not against that, and he accepted that graciously and humbly. But what's interesting is 
in the context of his conversation with the Corinthian church, that has never been a dynamic of their relationship. Paul will teach the churches that uh, a, a laborer is worthy of his wages, meaning that, like, you know, Corinthian church, you guys should be paying for those who are ministering to you in the word, but he himself never took a salary from Corinth. When he went to Corinth, instead, he worked as a tent maker. We talked about this quite a bit while we were teaching through 1 Corinthians as well as 2 Corinthians, but he did his ministry entirely for free. So when he's talking to the Corinthian church, he's exhorting them and encouraging them towards an offering, but it's entirely unbiased. It's a third-party offering. It's not between him and the Corinthians. He's kind of coming by as, as a mediator, saying, you know, I would like to challenge you and encourage you to take up an offering for this other church. It has nothing to do with him. And now, so for our church, we are doing a little project like that, like we mentioned before, for Mary's Place. We are going to be taking a special offering. And, and so, while I'm up here right now, um, exhorting you and, and challenging you in regarding generosity, it, it doesn't involve me. And I, I'm not, I'm not uh, trying to encourage you to um, offer anything so that way it, it comes towards this church. It's this collection that's not going to be for our church whatsoever. We're going to give it to Mary's Place, and we'll talk a little bit about that towards the end. Okay, so that's kind of our caveat, our, our warning, our introduction for this sermon. Um, I actually would like to pray once more and then we'll talk a little bit more about the offering for the saints and get into 2 Corinthians. Lord, you're always faithful. And with you is always constant faithfulness. And so all that we ask is that you would be here in our midst, that you'd be here amongst us. Um, this has to do with money. This has to do with um, a lot of practical things but we're, we're here because you heal us. This is about you, Jesus, and I just pray that you would occupy a prominent position in today's sermon, in your, your role, that you'd be present here and fulfill all of our needs, that today's discussion would, um, would really minister to our souls because you're a God who heals us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, a very important theme in this passage is the theme of need. And I don't mean the verb need, to need something. I, I mean the noun that is need. Uh, Merriam-Webster's definition of need is a condition requiring supply or relief. It is a need. And there was a need in Jerusalem. We'll find as we work through this time that Jesus has a heart to supply for every single need, to be a provider for everybody in his church. And it will, we'll also come to see, and it'll flesh out as, the, as our study continues together, that it's not always the provision that one might expect. We, we think on a practical level, provision always has to do with money or actual resources, but sometimes there are immaterial provision, and in, in many ways, the immaterial provision that Jesus offer us, offers us in this life is sometimes the most refreshing, even greater than the material provision. So what was Paul's plan to supply or relieve the need of Jerusalem? 
he uh, went kind of on this widespread campaign where he told all the churches what he was going to do so they could get started before he got there. This was the plan that he told to Galatia, and then he also outlines it in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, if you're interested in looking that up another time. This is the plan. He says, every individual, so not just the church as a whole, but every individual, every week, should be setting aside something proportionate to what they make. So he's not saying everybody needs to set aside 10 bucks. He's not saying everybody needs to set aside only $1. He's saying, you know, let, let a person be convinced in their own heart how much they want to give every single week and be setting it aside, just setting it aside, setting it aside. And it's kind of this specific pile of contribution that over time it's going to accrue into a, a larger lump sum. And eventually what Paul was going to do is he's going to travel to each of these churches. In each of these churches where people, every individual setting aside a little bit every single week. Several months later, maybe a year later, Paul would come by this church and he would invite them to send delegates. And so he would come, you know, for example, to Calvary the Hill and he would say, um, all right, we're, we're ready to take this gift. Who do you guys want to send? And we, of course, would say Nate Gamet and Ruben Perez. And they would be our delegates for Calvary the Hill. And they would join this campaign who all together would go to Jerusalem representing all of the churches that contributed Okay, and they would be carrying their own gift and they would be giving it to Jerusalem and say, here, God bless you, our brothers, on behalf of the church in Corinth or on behalf of Calvary the Hill. That was the plan. So Paul gives them this heads up ahead of time in 1 Corinthians. And he's actually answering their question because they, they know about this offering and they ask Paul about it. And he says, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad you asked. This is how I would like you to do it. And that's the plan. Here's the timeline as it, as it works out specifically to, to Corinth. Paul, uh, towards the end of the year, was going to go visit Macedonia. It's, it's a region in the Mediterranean that included Philippi and I believe Thessalonica and Berea. And he was going to go up there, which is just a little bit north of the region where Corinth was located. So towards the end of the year and around the fall. His plan was to, during the wintertime, come down to the south and hang out in Corinth for the entire winter, and it was then where he was gonna gather the delegates, okay? If you're tracking with me so far, his plan is around winter time to go to Corinth and take from them their delegates to gather their gift to Jerusalem. However, there's a breakup in this plan. That was the original plan as he laid it out in uh, 1 Corinthians 16. This is what actually happened. Paul recognized that everything going on in Corinth was uh, pretty hectic, so he kind of gave them a surprise visit. On his way to Macedonia, he actually stops at Corinth first. Remember, they were expecting him to come afterwards to collect uh, the delegation and all of the people, and he was going to spend the winter with them, but he goes there ahead of schedule, probably around the fall. And when he goes there, he has a really, really bad experience with them. And the church is in upheaval, and they're striving against Paul. And so he, he leaves, and in 2 Corinthians 2, he explains, because the experience was so bad, he decided not to come back to Corinth to, take that, to get those delegates, to, to take that collection, not even to spend the winter with them, because their relationship was broken. Okay, so he sends this letter by way of Titus. Titus comes back. 
while Paul is writing what we know as 2 Corinthians, and Titus tells them, you know, the Corinthian church is entirely repentant, and now Paul continues in 2 Corinthians, and he's ready to talk about this offering again. He's ready to talk about it again because their relationship is reconciled. Once they, when they were striving against Paul, he was not really interested in talking to them about money at all. He first wanted to talk to them about their, um, their waywardness, the way that they had kind of left the Lord and left orthodoxy and kind of had rejected him and in so doing had rejected Christ. That was his primary concern and that was his greatest priority. But now that that has been resolved, he wants to talk to them about this again. Because, here's the key point, because he didn't go back to Corinth after going to Macedonia because he had such a bad time with them, he never grabbed that collection. He never did the original trip that he'd planned because his surprise trip was um, so tragic and so difficult. Um, so that's, that's where we are, and Paul's going to begin talking about that. We can gather for sure that the collection has not been taken yet because Paul's talking about it. But what we can kind of infer from conjecture is that maybe when Paul was in Corinth on that surprise visit, he realized that this collection was not going well. Either people were fighting so much against Paul that they decided to not take this offering anymore, or maybe they never started, or maybe because they began to reject Paul, they took this money back and they spent it. But it seems, based upon Paul's tone here, that he recognizes that uh, the offering that was supposed to accrue every single week, that even though now it's 18 months later, it's not really accrued 18 months worth. And so we have him addressing that. Let's, let's read the passage today. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 10 through 15. And I'm going to be reading out of the New King James today, so if, if you're in a different translation, it may be a little bit jarring. Feel free to follow in on your own. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 10 through 15. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it. That is, there was a readiness to desire it, so there also must be a completion out of what you have. For there is first, if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, and not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, and that their abundance may supply your lack, that there may be equality." As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. It's the word of the Lord. Um, there is a tone shift over the course of this passage alone, and, and so I want to bring out the initial tone. First, Paul, that accidentally rhymed. I try to avoid doing that. Um, <laughs> It starts out with, with gentleness. Paul says, and in this I give advice. Or if you have another translation, you may say, in this, here is my judgment, or I would advise. The, the point is, based upon what you, whatever the translators are here, it's, it's, this is not a command. Paul intentionally does not make his, his conversations with the church about their generosity and their donations and their giving, he doesn't command them. He, he just has a level of gentleness in that sort of thing. And he's, 
overall, he's not afraid to make commandments. He recognizes his authority over the church. Remember, 2 Corinthians 1 through 7 is all about Paul proving his authority over the church and that he has authority over them in love. The, the, the book opens with Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He claims his office and he knows that he has authority over the church. And yet he chooses to just reduce this a little bit and say, this is my advice. It, it isn't to say that this is um, like a, a small value of words that Paul's giving, but it is to say that he's being more gentle about it. And, and so this is this kind of soft tone, and this is the advice he gives. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago. Um, let's, let's stop there. That's an independent clause, but let's stop there. Interesting enough, he starts with, it is to your advantage. He's talking to the Corinthians, who are the prospective would-be benefactors to the church in Jerusalem. They're gathering money to relieve Jerusalem. In many ways, this is something that's going to cost Corinth. And yet, ironically, and somewhat unexpectedly, it starts out with Paul saying, this is to your advantage. That's kind of interesting. We'll pick up on that a little bit more in verse 14, but keep that in mind. That's where he begins. This is to your advantage, Corinth. And then, not only to be doing what you began and what you began and were desiring to do a year ago. Pause. Let's let's talk about that. Very interesting what Paul says here. He says, "Not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago." The the NIV seems to think that when he says began here, that he's not just talking that about them themselves beginning amidst themselves to do this. Like this was the first time you guys started to take money about, about a year ago. The, the NIV seems to think that what Paul means there is that they actually started, that they were the first church in, in the uh, Mediterranean to begin this offering for Jerusalem. We know that they were among the first because when Paul goes to Macedonia, he uses the Corinthians' example to kind of generate uh, a desire within the Macedonians to gain money. So the Corinthians were early on in this, and the NIV seems to think that maybe the Corinthians were the very first, which is somewhat interesting. Um, but here, this is the part that I really, really want to stress. Um, we're desiring, uh, you began and we're desiring to do a year ago. Or in, in the ESV, it says, not only that you are doing, but also desired to do a year ago. That's really strange syntax, word order within the sentence. You, you would imagine Paul saying, I, I really want you to continue doing not only what you wanted to do, but also did, and then commending that physically they, 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 uh, their walk was as, as bold as their talking. Do you see what I mean? Like, you would expect that Paul is commending them for actually giving their money, but it seems instead that Paul is commending them for actually genuinely having a desire. You know, when, when you say some, when you make a not only but statement, usually the emphasis is on the second one, right? I'll give you a very, distract, uh, a very distracting example. You guys want it? You remember in the Sandlot, the, uh, the preppy kid says to Ham, you bob for apples in the toilet, and what? And you like it. Ryan's here, everybody. <laughs> you bob for apples in the toilet, and you like it. Um, the, the point is, is the worst part about this is that you like it. That's why it's the second one. It's where the gravity, where the emphasis leads. And Paul is, is kind of using, 
I told you it was going to be distracting. He uses, a, he uses a similar kind of a sentence structure to emphasize that not only are you guys giving money, you like it. Not only were you guys collecting, but it was your desire to do that. Paul is commending them for not just mechanically, here's the money, it's Sunday again. Here's the money, it's Sunday again. Here's the money. He doesn't want to commend mechanics like that. He wants to commend them for having a God-given desire to give to Jerusalem. And he wants to remind them that this is, this is what it was like last year, guys. And it's to your advantage to remember that at one point, you liked it. You were, you were raising money for Jerusalem because you had a heart, a, a vigor, an eagerness, a desire to do this, and you were doing it, but you liked it. Not only were you doing it, but you had a desire to. Um, okay, so he says, not, on, not only to be doing what you began and desired to do a year ago, but now you must complete the doing of it. This is where the tone shifts. Remember the first thing, the first thing that Paul said was, um, in this I give you advice. It was a more gentle approach. It was a suggestion, if you will. It was an authoritative suggestion coming from somebody that the church respects, but it was just advice. It was just him sharing his wisdom. Here is an imperative. This is where he exercises his authority as an apostle. An apostle meaning that he, he has, a, he has a, some charge over the church, but also he, um, he cares about the church, so that the direction that he's going to give them is going to be pouring out of his love. This is the imperative, to complete the doing of it. That is in an imperative tense, and it's helpful in the New King James Version. It says you also must complete the doing of it. Remember, I said he's not going to command them to give money, but he is going to command them to finish what they started. Now, at this point in the study, it just, it just sort of seems like Paul's being kind of the harsh coach, right? Finish what you started. You know, finish strong. I, I will just tell you right now that I don't think that's exactly how Paul is saying this. We're, we're going to continue on through, and I'm going to tell you why. But he, he's lovingly imploring and commanding that they complete it. Okay. Let's, let's just keep going through. The way Paul talks, he just starts a lot of stuff and he doesn't finish it till he's done. So I, I have to do the same thing. Otherwise, I'll miss something. Okay. That as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion. Paul says, here's why I need you to complete it. Because you started with the readiness, there has to be a completion. Remember first, I said he commended them for having a desire to do it in the first place. He's saying that the mechanics of giving is nothing without the actual heart and desire to do it. Here he kind of completes it full circle and says the uh, desire, the heart's desire to do something is really not worth much in, until you actually do it. So desire to, to be generous and uh, the, actual, the actual completion of it, the physical, actual giving of the generosity are kind of like two chains on either side of a swing seat, right? If you, if you take one off, it's not going to hold up any weight. And Paul is saying, it's a full circle thing. I first want to commend you guys that you genuinely wanted to give to the church in Corinth. But I also want to command you that you finish it. You have to finish it or it's not worth it. 
And again, I, I really, really want you to uh, hold that. He's not just being the harsh coach, saying finish strong. We'll, we'll uh, keep going. Uh, the, the last part of verse 11 through verse 12 says, there may be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. It's from this where we get today's sermon title. I didn't vocalize the sermon title early, but it's on the board. Uh, How to give like a Christian giving out of what you have. That's why we named this portion this, because the latter portion of verse 11 and verse 12. Out of what you have, for if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. It is possible that Paul is doing what good all, uh, all good authors do. He anticipates the response of his reader, and he may be thinking that someone may say, oh, but Paul, I don't really have much to give, kind of as an excuse, and so Paul is anticipating that and providing a quick thought rebuttal against that. He could be doing that. I, I don't really think he is. I think he's... I think he's continuing on in this heart of love after his reconciliation with the church. This this portion of 2 Corinthians has changed completely from the prior half of it because he knows that he's reconciled with this church again. And so Paul is, is not really being as harsh as he had once been in this book, or he wasn't harsh before, but he was very deliberate. And I think here he's still being sensitive because he's fresh in the reconciliation. I want you to consider this. Okay, consider that you were once a faithful congregate member of Paul's church plant in Corinth, okay? Some, some, sometime you start joining this church, and this church is operating according to Paul's direction, and you love Paul, and he's, he's one of your heroes. However, somewhere along the lines, people that you trust and respect come into the church and tell you that, look, Paul is not a good representation of Jesus Christ. And you start hearing what they have to say and you start believing it and you come to hate Paul. And let's say that the, the amount of money that you'd saved because Paul told you to save it, you come to despise that money because you realize that Paul was, you know, a wash up. So you get rid of all that money, you spend it, you take it, or you, you do something else with it. And then you repent because you realize you were wrong. But at this point, all of your money's gone. Or maybe you stopped giving, and so you, you bear somewhat of the guilt that a lot of time has gone by, and you don't have the amount to offer that really you should, because 18 months have passed, and you should have been setting something aside every single week, but you don't. I think Paul is speaking to somebody like that right now. And I, I think that he wants, he wants them to understand, don't be ashamed if you don't have as much as you think that you should. Don't be ashamed of that. Just complete what you started out of what you have. And he's saying, if there's first a willing mind, remember that the desire was such a big emphasis so far. If you really, really desired to begin with, in God's eyes, it's acceptable. According to what he has, not according to what he doesn't have. God doesn't look at a person who really had a heart's desire to give and say, well, you really should have given 50 bucks and you really, you've only got 15 to share. So, you know, there, there's a bit of a, a shortcoming there. Paul's saying that that's just not the way God works. That's not the way God works. Instead, God looks at the heart and he sees if somebody greatly desires, if they don't live up to what they intended, maybe because they can't afford it or because they ended up changing their mind midway through and spent some of the money, 
said, just, just give what you have and God will accept it. Now, it's interesting that Paul says accepted it because Paul is an Israelite. He's a Jewish Pharisee. You know, he doesn't stray very far from his, his deep foundation in Judaism. When he says something is acceptable to the Lord, he is, he's borrowing verbiage from the Levitical law where, where God would tell the people of Israel, this is how you have to offer a sacrifice. And if you don't follow these laws, then the sacrifice is not acceptable in the sight of the Lord. It is disqualified legally. And Paul is saying, when it comes to an offering to the Lord out of generosity, the only legal requirement in God's eyes in order for him to accept it is that you, from your heart, really wanted to give and that there's a genuineness from this. It, it's, it's really important that we do understand that with God, generosity is not quantitative. It's never quantitative. Sometimes the, the numeric amount of our gift is an outpouring of our hearts, but overall, the priority, the primary focus of God is not the quantity. It can't be. You have to understand that when we, uh, Solomon says in Proverbs that he who lends to the poor lends to God. Right, so when, when we give a donation, it's to God. And so you have to understand the context, the perspective of the Lord. This is God who created everything. He owns everything by his right. Everything belongs to him. No matter how much we give, it's always gonna be something small in the eyes of the Lord. So the quantity doesn't matter. It's about the heart. I heard someone recently say that Jesus is always astounded by the level of faith that people have. Sometimes he's astounded by how little faith people have, but sometimes he's astounded by how great faith that they have. Remember the, the widow with her two mites. Jesus is watching as people are contributing to the temple so that way they, could, they can uh, maintain the temple. And he sees a woman who gives two mites, and it equals a quadrant, whatever that means. I think it means a penny. Um, it's a very minute amount, and Jesus commends her because he doesn't care about the quantity. He, he's looking at the heart. I remember a couple of weeks ago, I was, uh, I was having a conversation with Shiloh about some vacation destination, and we were just, that's Shiloh's my three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and uh, we were just dreaming up some big, fun stuff. You, you can imagine, we'll just say it was Disneyland. It wasn't, but we'll just say it was Disneyland. Um, and at the end of the conversation, we had to have a discussion where I said, you know, Shiloh, this was really fun talking about this, but just so you know, um, you know, this is just pretend we, we can't actually do this. Um, and, you know, so she, she asked, why? And I said, well, honey, because, you know, daddy doesn't really have the money to do that. And she said to me, I have money. And uh, she, she started talking to me about how she intended to share with me her money so that way we could do this great adventure and do this thing together. And, and the money she was talking about is this translucent blue Chase Bank piggy bank that sits on her dresser. It's full of small bills, coins, and buttons. And, um, and, but you know what, just the, the eagerness that I saw in her, in her mind and in her eyes, that she just wanted to do this adventure with me, she just wanted to participate, she wanted it to be more than just pretend, it, it really, it really affected my heart. Not because what she's offering me has any value, very few places accept buttons anymore. <laughs> but because, because the heart was, she just wanted to do something with her father. 
And I think that the perspective of our Father in heaven, who has everything within his ownership and has every ability to multiply beyond his ownership, you know, think about the, the feeding of the 5,000. God can multiply everything that's here on earth. He never has a need. He has to see every contribution as, as something like that, you know, buttons in a piggy bank. That has to be the way God sees it. And so we have to remember, anytime somebody is preaching generosity in a quantitative sense, quantity may matter, but it's not the primary, and it's really not what God is after. And I don't say that to minimize um, great financial sacrifices that we, that we make to contribute to this church or to, to any ministry. I mean to maximize it. Because you, you may be able to give, you know, a couple hundred dollars to a particular ministry in a, in a particular year. And it, to be honest, that's just in the grand scheme of things, that's, a, that's, that's not a whole lot to save the world. And that can be somewhat depressing. But I, I teach this paradigm to maximize that sacrifice. So you guys recognize that in God's eyes, when you give whatever it is that you give, he sees your heart, and that's what really is acceptable to the Lord. Um, so Paul continues. He says, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but an equality. Okay. So Paul says, yes, I, I, I am encouraging you guys to gather some money for this church in Jerusalem, but I don't, I, I, I don't want you to get the wrong idea about this. I don't want you to think that it's because I want you guys to be poor, I want you guys to work hard and lose all your money so that way they can sit up comfortably. He goes, I want there to be an equality. This, this isn't an, an economic system that he's talking about. Don't think equity. That has a little bit more of a financial connotation to it. Think equality regarding uh, like, like social justice. In the sociological term, uh, equality was a Hellenistic uh, virtue that was taught by Aristotle and Plato. It was commonplace to understand that one of, um, one of the greatest goods is equality, equal value. Now, their culture, much like ours, fails in, in a lot of those ways, even though we you know, preach it. But that was the point. It was a virtue that there would be equality of value. And Paul is saying, look, I, I don't want you to think that the church in Jerusalem is any more important than you. But I also don't want the church in Jerusalem to think that there's anything about you guys that's more important than them. There is an equality. These are your brothers and sisters who are having issues in Jerusalem. And they are just as important as you. I've, I've got to speed up. I want to harp on that a little bit more, but I have to speed up. That now, this time, your abundance may supply their lack, and that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be an equality. Oh, here's an important thing. Um, verse 14, or, yeah, verse 14 starts with but by inequality. In the Greek, it's actually out of equality. So Paul is not saying that I want to do this great operation that we may accomplish equality amongst the church. He's saying that he's invoking uh, an equality that he claims already exists, and he's saying because there's an equality amidst the church, this is how we should act. And then that's what leads into this, that your abundance may supply their lack at this time, that their abundance may sub supply your lack. At face value, it sounds like Paul is saying currently, because he says at this time, currently, you guys have money and they don't. So you can lend them your money, and then sometime in the future, maybe you guys don't have a lot of money and their abundance can supply to you. 
I want to contend with you that that's, that's an okay interpretation of that passage, but I genuinely don't believe that that's what Paul's saying. And the reason why I don't think that is because that kind of goes against what he's already been saying be, up until this point. He's not telling them, hey, Jerusalem is a, is a good prospective investment. Give them money now, and when, you know, when their economy picks up, they'll be able to pay back to you. Or, you know, some have suggested in the new Jerusalem that there is, there is fortune to be had in the new Israel. And so you lend to them, and in the end times, you're going to be reaping from Israel. Or he, they, people have suggested that from Jerusalem, you've received the gospel. And so since they've given to you such great salvation, you should be giving to them out of, out of your money. And that's, uh, that's actually what Paul teaches in Romans 15. But I don't think that that's what he's teaching here. The reason is, is because this starts out with Paul's talking about them accomplishing something to their advantage. And then he invokes a memory within them to remember there was a time where you really wanted to give to Jerusalem. I think what he's saying is, you guys have an unresolved desire within your hearts. You guys really genuinely wanted to give to Jerusalem, but you didn't. And so there's something within your heart that is unsettled and unfinished. Jerusalem, they, they, do, they do need money. They don't need your money because they have God. But in them, in their abundant need, it reciprocally provides for your abundant need to give to them. You have this great need and dissatisfaction in your heart because you've not yet delivered on this desire that God had given you. When you give to them, it will satiate that desire and it will bring you great peace and in them, it will relieve them financially. You see, with God, there's never this transaction where he robs from Peter and gives to Paul. That's never the case. God has a way to somehow resolve everything that whenever he does something, it's God blesses Peter and blesses Paul. God blesses Corinth and blesses Jerusalem. There's abundance upon abundance upon abundance. God recognizes the need of every single person, and he delivers on those needs with, with great overabundance with great grace. Corinth is unsatisfied because in their hearts, God has given them a desire to give and they've not, they've not done it yet and so they're dissatisfied. Jerusalem has a need as well and God simultaneously is addressing and resolving those both. And God gives graciously. According to Luke, Jesus once said, it is better to give than to receive. So if Jesus is calling Corinth to give to Jerusalem, is he really trying to take from something valuable from them or is he really trying to give them something valuable? With God, it's always going to be like that. I don't want us to think that God uh, has put us at the center of the gospel and it's all about him just giving us whatever we want. But we would be remiss if we ignore everywhere in scripture where it's, where it's God giving generously to human beings. That's the relationship he chooses to have with us. And I think about how, how uh, the various, I, I looked in the New Testament, the various places where this word need comes up, and there's, there's quite a few places where Jesus says, this is what you need, this is what you do not need. And if you, if you know the stories well, you know the way they turn out. He says, people who are whole have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And the implication is, I'm here to be what they need. When there's a bunch of people gathered in the wilderness, uh, the apostles say to Jesus, should we send them out so they can go get something to eat? And Jesus says, they don't need to go. Give to them. 
the, Im- the implication is all these stories lead to Jesus providing the need himself. It's important we recognize that God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, this is the God over all of creation who needs nothing. He wants to give to you because it's within your pleasure to give if he has so put that on your heart. And then Paul references this occurrence in Exodus 16. It says, as it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Um, This is uh, a commentary on the story of manna in the wilderness. And the uh, the directions God gave was, you you can gather a specific amount of manna every single day. It's an omer. Uh, And there's a little bit of conjecture of what an omer is, but they said, God told them, you can gather an omer every single day except for the Sabbath, okay? And so at the end of the day, this was the commentary. He who gathered more had no leftover, and he who gathered little had no lack. This could mean a few things. It could mean miraculously God equalized the supply of manna, or it could mean that if somebody was shown to have too much, their, uh, the amount was scraped off of their top of their omer jar and given to who didn't collect enough. It's, it's, not, a, it's not exactly clear, and um, I, I, would, I would argue that it, it kind of doesn't matter as far as, as this conversation goes. Here's why. When Paul gives an example like this, You can go to the narrative and you could draw all sorts of profound parallels. You can say, oh yeah, manna was God's provision. So what Paul is meaning to say is that God has raised up Corinth to be his provision for Jerusalem. And that's kind of a profound parallel. Or you can say, oh, if anybody kept manna for more than a day, it turned rotten. So maybe what Paul is trying to tell the Corinthians is that if they keep more money than they need, it's not going to serve them in the end. That's kind of a profound parallel. But I don't think that that's what Paul means. There is a way to over-exegete an illustration, to read too much into it. I think what Paul is saying is this. God cares about everybody. We're talking about amounts here. Imagine somebody gathered way too much food. What happens? Does God penalize them? No. He just gives them enough of what they need. He takes away, he, you know, takes away what, what they don't need, and he ma- but he makes sure that they have enough. Again, he's, he's, God will not burden the Corinthians so that way the Jerusalem church can be relieved. God will make sure that they have enough. And God also cares about those who don't have enough. In this story, those who didn't have enough manna, they ended up having enough. Maybe by miracle or maybe by generosity. It doesn't matter. The point is, is from the beginning, God has expressed a heart e- equally for those who have too much and those who don't have enough. One may say that in scripture that God has a soft spot for the poor, but we shouldn't miss that God loves the Corinthians. He cares about them, and he doesn't want to deprive them. And I, and I really believe that in the, the nature of his request to have them give to Jerusalem is because God has first put within them a desire to give, and God wants them to give so that way they may be blessed and may be satisfied, and they may partake in this this paradigm that Jesus says that it's more blessed to give than to receive. I think that God is trying to give to the Corinthians, and of course he's trying to give to Jerusalem too, but it's never about the quantity with the Lord. It's never about need with the Lord. We're, we're kind of r- round in third here. I'm going to be finishing up. I, but I want to read out of Psalm 50 to help us to understand um, God's perspective in the world. 
Uh, I'm going to be reading verses 7 through 12. Uh, you can read the rest of the, the psalm, because to be honest, this excerpt doesn't give you the full um, understanding of what this particular psalm is saying in and of itself, but this, this excerpt I will read will serve for this sermon. Verses 7 through 12 says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and its fullness. This is the way God sees sacrifice. Here he's talking about, you know, animal sacrifices, but it can be well applied to our monetary sacrifices. God says, if, if I needed a fiver, I wouldn't ask you. <laughs> Everything is mine. And so, you know, if God is, if you feel that God is putting on your heart to give, I want you to understand that it's to your benefit to not, and not to God's. It's to your advantage to deliver upon the desire that God's put on your heart. It's not because God needs it. Remember that the people in the wilderness, God provided food out of nothing for them. Or the, the feeding of the 5,000, God multiplied. He doesn't need to pull from a finite resource. He has and has and can multiply beyond what already exists. If God calls the Corinthian church to give, it's because it's more blessed to give than to receive, and God wants to bless Corinth, not because he needs to take from them and redistribute his wealth amongst the church. And so my challenge for us as a church, myself included, is actually quite an encouraging one, and it's this. God wants to give. God wants to bless us. Specifically talking about this Mary's Place uh, offering that we're going to be taking uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of, of what it is. They, they have a, a grant program that when somebody transitions out of their center, uh, they, they give them some money. I won't give you the quantity. They give, you, they give them some money so that way they can use that money for uh, like a deposit on, on a place or first month's rent or something. They also give them a little bit of money so that way they can defer the application fee for applying for a house or, or an apartment. And that's what that grant is. Our offering is going to go to Mary's place so that way uh, they can grow the, the account for that grant. Okay, and that, that's, that's where this money is going. If you feel like God is putting it on your heart to give to that, then what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to tell you today is don't think that God needs your money, but, but maybe, maybe bring before the Lord, maybe... In your heart, you have a need to give to them, and God will give to you and bless you through that. But, but hear, hear this, too. If, if you're not interested in doing that, then maybe God has not given you this desire, and maybe you need not give to this program, and maybe God is reserving your money for, for, for your life or for some other benefit. Who knows? I'm not sure. But I think I would like to tell you today that if that's the case, what you need to know is God doesn't need your money. And what God wants to give to you today is freedom to not feel compulsion to give by pressure from some guy in a burgundy sweater. Maybe that's what you need to know today. Maybe, they, maybe if you don't feel interested in contributing to this Mary's place, you need to know that God, 
doesn't, doesn't want you to. Maybe you need to know that God has freedom for you and blessing for you, and maybe the way he wants to bless you is to show you that you don't have to give. If you're not a Christian today, I want to make it clear that God doesn't need your money to, to take care of Mary's place, to support this church. We don't need your money, but I think what God is trying to identify in, in your heart is that you have a need. You have a need for Jesus Christ, who in, uh, in Philippians, Paul says, he will supply all of your needs beyond finance. It includes forgiveness for your sins. It includes eternity in heaven, but the greatest thing is relationship with Jesus himself. The Corinthians had an empty place in their heart where they had a desire to give to, to Jerusalem. The Corinthians did. And it, it was like a vacuum, a hole, a vacant place in their heart because they hadn't delivered upon that. And, you know, sometimes it's helpful. People, uh, you know, preachers say that all of us are born with a similar hole in our heart for God. And we're unsatisfied because that, that emptiness, that void in our heart isn't occupied. It is never satiated by the things that we try to fill it with. We need Jesus. And what Jesus wants to offer you today is not to take from you, but rather to give to you himself because it's truly what you need. And there's more blessing with Jesus than without Jesus. When, when we do this sermon series and continue it about gospel giving, please don't see a banner of this is a list of what God needs. Recognize it as an opportunity, as an individual conversation you can have with the Lord where God's trying to awaken within you. What is it that you need? What is it that you need? Because I'm gonna give it to you. I want to give it to you. If you will just permit, I will give to you, but you'll have to listen to me. You'll have to do what I'm calling, to do, calling you to do because I know your heart better than you do and I know how to satisfy the needs in your heart better than you do. Um, there's, there's this part, and I'll close with this. There's this part in, uh, in the book of John. You know, it's, it's the narrative, and I think it's in John 16, when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. I remember when Peter, because he's Peter, says, no, don't wash me. You know, he's, he tries to stand out, tries, you know, he, he feels differently than everybody, so he acts differently than everybody. And then, uh, you know, Jesus says, you know, if I don't wash you, you're not clean. And he says, okay, then wash all of me. You know, he always feels different, so he does different things. Um, and Jesus says, you know, those who are clean don't need another washing. They just need their feet washing, washed. And then what does Jesus proceed to do? He washes Peter's feet. It's important that we recognize Jesus and God as this same holistic person that he is this great magnanimous God who owns everything, who has no need that he wants to take from us. He is big. He is out there. But it's also important to remember that Jesus represents the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is the greatest representation of God's heart in fleshly form. And he was this great magnanimous God who served the needs of people he loved, even if it just meant washing their feet. You're not at the center of this gospel. 
God is at the center of this gospel. And yet, it's incredible how much God freely gives and supplies when he sees a need in your heart. And indeed, we are all in great need this morning. And I don't, I don't know what your need is, but I'll tell you something comforting. Jesus does. And I'll tell you something even more comforting. He wants to fill that need and provide for it. And I'll tell you something that's the most comforting, is that he can. With him, there is a desire to give to you. But with him, there's also a doing of giving to you. And with him, it was at the great extent of him dying upon the cross. He delivered upon that desire. Not only did he die, but he wanted to die for you. Not only did he want to die for you, but he actually died for you. And I know, I know that there's, there's brokenness within the church and also for those of you who are visiting who may not be a Christian, so, you know, outside of the church. But I'm confident of this thing, that God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's Philippians 4.20. Um, let, let's close in prayer, and then Emily will come up for worship. And if your children are in children's ministry, once I'm done praying, you can go get them. Let's pray. Lord, how do you do it? How is it that you bless everyone simultaneously? How is it that you, you within our hearts, show us where there's a need in the world, and yet uh, when you call us to um, bring relief to that need, what you're really doing is giving to us as well. How do you do it? We will never understand because the best things that we know are still finite. Five million resources in our mind are still five million resources, and that's a finite number. But with you, your grace is unending. You own everything, and beyond that, you can multiply everything. And in so doing, you multiply your blessings upon the person who receives relief, and yet somehow, you give blessing to the giver as well. Jesus, the greatest gift has always been your sacrifice upon the cross. And in your word says that that is the greatest blessing that's available to all of us. There's plenty of that blessing to go around. And what's really strange is in your word it also says that it was pleasure to you, God, to give of yourself, even if that meant the death on the cross. You yourself Receive blessing while you bless others. We'll never understand this because everything we understand is merely transactional and a redistribution of finite resources. But God, you are infinite and your glory is infinite and your goodness is infinite. And I stand today amidst a church that represents people whom you want to bless. And the truth of the matter is, is that your blessings are not always financial, but I can say without a doubt, because I know you, that when you don't bless us financially, it's because what we need is something that's not financial. And you are ready to deliver and give to that and overwhelm our needs in spades. Jesus, you're worthy and deserving of glory now and forever and ever. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. We have uh, the communion elements available here up front. We have a gluten-free option. We have a wine option. We have a non-alcoholic option. Um, this represents 
uh, receiving that, that gift that Jesus has offered to you. And if you've not received it yet, um, if, you, if you would like to know a little bit more about Christianity and the gospel that we preach, not because we want you to join the club, but because we know that you need Jesus and we want you to have Jesus because we've experienced that satisfaction too. Um, so if, if you're not a Christian today, um, rather than um, partaking in communion right away, maybe you can meet with Luann or, Dor- or, excuse me, Luann or Nick up front uh, for prayer and maybe receive Jesus for the first time. Of course, Luann and Nick are also available for any other prayer that anybody in the church may need. And I just want to step down one final time today by just saying I, I really, really love you guys. And um, in me serving this church, you guys really represent the deliverance upon a need that I have. And I, and I have a great desire and need um, to serve you guys. And when you permit that I serve you, um, Jesus is using you to, to bless my heart so much. And I'm not worthy of you guys, but I I need you guys, and I love you very much, so thank you. God bless you guys.